This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello, and welcome to the Legal Lounge, where we now release new episodes every Monday. If you haven't heard previous shows, there's plenty of content for you. If you're going through a divorce, want to know more about claiming for injuries, or you're training to be a lawyer, you can listen to these shows on your favourite podcast app and get more information by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this podcast, private client solicitors Amy Johnson and Edward Rees talk about the probate process and the administration of someone's estate after they die. They highlight the benefits of the Tell Us Once service, explain what is covered in the initial meeting between the personal representatives and the lawyers, and the following steps in the probate pathway. Hello, I'm Edward, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Amy Johnson, solicitor in our private client department. Hello, Amy. Hello, Edward. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Um, I'm all right, thank you. I'm okay and uh, very pleased to be joining you today to talk about the process of obtaining probate, administering somebody's estate. That's what we're going to discuss today, isn't it? Yes. Hopefully we'll cover everything from what to do right at the beginning all the way through to the end. Okay, because it's, again, we we often have meetings with clients, a loved one's died, we're discussing the will. They know they've got to do things, but they're not sure exactly what they've got to do. And they're not sure about when things are going to happen and the order of events, uh, what they should be doing immediately, what's a priority, what's something that's going to happen sort of further down the line and the time frame. Uh, so I guess the purpose of today's discussion is to give people a steer on that, isn't it? Yeah, just to set it out step by step. And so they've got an idea of the order and which things need to be carried out. Okay. Starting right at the beginning then. I mean, actually, you've laid out the steps for us in, in a bullet point plan, actually. We're going right to the beginning. It's not even, you know, getting the grant of probate the very first step what, what's your advice there what do we do it all starts with registering the death after someone has sadly passed away when it is a more immediate family it's a more straightforward process because you already have a lot of that information about kind of their full names any former names what their occupations are but maybe if you are a niece or nephew of the deceased or someone slightly further removed then you kind of need to do a bit of digging and kind of get the full background before you arrive at the registrar because I have had to register it Mm -hmm. a death on behalf of a client and I have been caught out before so you kind of need to have all that information to hand when you arrive at the registrar. So this is very early days isn't it and we generally we're not involved in this part of the process are we occasionally like you said you, you know you you've registered a death and I, i've had to register a death for for the odd client where there's no but that's when relative. there's been absolutely yeah. no family members available yeah but this would be the, the the very first thing wouldn't it and normally it would be the family sorting this out and there are there there's information that they need that they might not necessarily have to hand maiden names that sort of thing isn't it national so, insurance number that, sometimes yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely and that's clearly it's a priority and so that's that's number one on on the checklist but yes if there is nobody else to do that then then we will do it won't we yes 
it doesn't happen in many cases. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a rare event, isn't it? And then another rare event following on from that, but again, it does happen, is organising the funeral. Uh, we, we've done it, but it's it's rare because there's usually family who are, who are involved in that, isn't it? Yes, and you don't necessarily have to be the executor named in the will to be able to organise the funeral. Okay. Organising the funeral, something that people can be a bit worried about that is if I'm sorting that out, what about the cost? Because funerals are not cheap things. They're pretty expensive, aren't they? And so people might be worried, I suppose, about, well, how are we going to pay for this? The funeral director's not necessarily asking us to pay for it right now, but there'll be an account coming in a couple of weeks' time or the funeral director is saying, we want this payment on account or we want to know that this is going to be sorted. Are they right to be worried? Can that be sorted out fairly quickly or, or are they going to have to dip into their own pockets? There are options available to them. And there is a system in place where if you provide a copy of the funeral invoice directly to the deceased bank, then they will arrange a bank transfer directly to the funeral director. So you don't have to be concerned about paying the money yourself. However, I have known cases where the funeral directors do almost require proof of funds so they may actually request a copy of a bank statement so they can see that there is that money available to pay the funds afterwards more more something we're seeing more often now isn't it really than uh, than it might have been the case say 10 years ago or 20 years ago yeah that's what happened with my nan earlier this year right okay so then uh, another thing that comes up is a well tell us what this is the the, the tell us once service what's that it is a notification service that will notify all of the government institutions so this can include dwp for state pension or attendance allowance and also hmrc if for income tax purposes but also more generally kind of um, passport driving license and that sort of thing oh so we'll update DVLA and the passport uh, people as well, will it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I, I, you know, I had no idea that was the case. I knew it told the DWP and then they did absolutely nothing for months, possibly years, and the HMRC, but I didn't know it, it, it did the driving licence uh, and passport. Yeah, and even down to like local library as well. You can cancel your library card with them. Really? Well, that's that's great. Okay, well, thank you, Amy. I've, I've, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> I'm more than I thought I would do. So that's great. Okay. Again, normally that wouldn't be us doing that. That would come up at the point of the the registration of the death, wouldn't so it? So they've changed it oh, now. Again, okay, no, no, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so historically, like I say, um, come and see Amy <laughs> if something happens. Don't come and see me. Before COVID, you would have almost done a long process when the long version when you came to register the death and you would submit all that information to the registrar and but now they give you a password so you can now do it at home yourselves kind of log on to um, the government website and you can do it at home so you've got 28 days from um, at which point the link would then expire but that then gives you the opportunity to gather all the information so you can notify as many 
people at the same time. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. That's that's really helpful, useful advice for everybody, isn't it? Okay. This next stage, I suppose, is when we are more often. This is where we we're introduced into the into the process, the solicitors. So this is really the point at which after those earlier steps have been carried out, you would then be meeting with the solicitor. Let's assume you've got a will and you've lodged it with solicitors or the wills at home, but you want advice and you want assistance. So you come to see Amy at Lanyon Bowdler. We're now at at this point. So how would you organise things? You'd have a meeting? Yes, we usually like to have a face-to-face meeting. We would double check just before the meeting whether the person who has made the initial contact with us is one of the executors named in the will. And if they're not, or if they're acting with other people, we'd try and get those then people involved in the meeting as well however based on location it doesn't necessarily have to be face to face and if it is easier for certain parties we can carry that out on zoom yeah as well and we've got to be careful it's not that we don't want to see people or speak to people but we've got to be very careful especially at this stage about who we're dealing with client confidentiality making sure we're actually seeing the client because you know first of all we've got to have seen a death certificate because we've yeah, got to be sure that the person has died. That's absolutely key, isn't that's it? That's a must. At this stage, it, it, the, the will is confidential between you know the solicitors who are holding it and the executors. So if family members think that we've talked about this in another podcast, or if it hasn't been broadcast yet, we'll be talking about it in another podcast. Uh, but if a family member was an attorney or they think they're an executor and they're not, that can be a bit awkward, can't it? I mean, you know, so, so we've got to be very careful. It's not like we're trying to be difficult, but we've got to make sure we're speaking with the right people and the right people at this stage are the executives. Now they can give us authority to talk with any other person if they give us that authority, but it is the executors who are our clients isn't it yes okay and we might be the executives might we uh, so in that in that situation where the person who's done the will the, the testator uh, where they've appointed Lanyon Bowdler partners as executors who would we be meeting with then the residuary beneficiaries so they're the people who will be receiving the estate or kind of the the main pot of money okay. at the end of the estate this meeting you're going to be talking about you i mean the first thing you do is you're going to run through the content of the will aren't you uh, what other things are you going to be uh, talking about in that initial meeting with uh, with uh, the executors or the residuary beneficiaries we would look at the type of assets that the deceased had at that point so we would encourage the executors to bring as much information and even paperwork or bank statements with them i've been known for a client to turn up with a washing basket (laughs) full of paperwork because they just emptied a filing cabinet and just placed it in so actually brought it all in a washing basket Okay. Well, it, was very, it was a very organised washing basket. Some people bring in a list, don't they? Uh, uh, it's all on one piece of A4 or, you know, there's a file with, with details, but some people will just bring in effectively the, the contents of a filing cabinet, stuff that's going back years and years and years, weren't they? So, yeah, some yeah. people don't like to get rid of paperwork. So you kind of get the hoard, the, ask the other extreme where you'd say you've got the hoarders with years and years worth of paperwork. So what, what do you prefer? Do you prefer to go through a filing cabinet or a, uh, a washing basket full of papers stretching back 20 years? Or would you rather have a nice spreadsheet delivered to you via email? So I suppose that 
This is a, a a pointer, isn't it, for people who've done a will or if they haven't done a will or they're thinking about these kind of things. Actually, if you've got your copy of your will at home, every so often add to it a, a, an up-to-date schedule of how your estate is presently comprised. I mean, principally, you know, things like bank account details, you know, who the, who the bank account is with and the account numbers. They change, don't they? Or they can change investment portfolios. You know, having the 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 financial institutions their reference numbers and account numbers uh and having that detail rather than 20 years worth of bank statements is actually really really useful isn't it and then if the person can keep that up to date keep a copy of that with the copy of their will at home let their dearest and nearest know it's not dearest and nearest is it nearest and dearest let them know where the copy of the will is uh, or their executives know where their copy of the will is and that the originals with lb those things are useful things aren't they yeah actually also as well things to store with your will maybe also an up-to-date addresses for any beneficiaries and the executors yes as well because whilst it would it doesn't invalidate the will if anyone changes address it does make it easier to contact them yeah afterwards yeah it does and if people have been lost track off by the time of death or you haven't got an address we generally can find them without too much trouble we've got useful trace people who can generally find anybody but it is much easier isn't it if, if that info can be kept up to date it's supposed more cost efficient as well actually that's true that's also true absolutely yeah time is time is money isn't it when it when it comes down to this sort of thing anything else that you're talking about then at that uh, initial meeting um, we kind of linking back to the address, but I should say going through everyone who's mentioned in the will mm-hmm. just to make sure that they are still with us. And if they have passed away, what provisions there are in the will in that event. Um, and also, actually, if there's any concerns about possible claims against the estate, if anyone's been excluded from the will who may feel like they should have been included and just a bit risk management I suppose at that point really. It's very important isn't it especially for us in determining how long we think something's going to take or or, or how uh, the, the likely cost involved in dealing with it. Generally speaking if there are potential disputes or potential claims the parties who might be disputatious or might bring a claim they're not coming to that meeting are they? But sometimes you can have everybody coming to that initial meeting, can't you? And then your job as a probate practitioner is, you know, part of the, the skills you've got to develop. And the skill set is kind of reading the room, isn't it? And picking up on stuff. Yeah, like sometimes that. there can be two definite sides to the room. Mm. And you should also always make sure you're sat closest to the door. <laughs> <laughs> If you have got that situation where you've got a a potential dispute, you've got a potentially disgruntled party, of course, what we can't do is we can't act for everybody, can we? We can't act for all sides uh, in a dispute. If we're dealing with the administration of the estate, we're going to be acting for the executors. And actually, the executors' job, if there is a dispute between beneficiaries, is to actually... They, they don't take sides, do they? Remain neutral, yeah. no. Uh, and, and so it's really for the warring parties to either fight it out or to reach an agreement and then to either execute things as per what's been agreed or as per what a, a court has ordered is, is to happen if you've got that kind of dispute. So at this stage, it's just getting a feel for whether there's anything like that likely to come down the road isn't it other things that we're looking at then is you know we're then getting a feel aren't we what's in the estate so then we're getting a feel for what the value of the estate is whether there are other connected things gifts that might have been made 
during the seven years before death. There's kind of two main important values within the probate process. You've got the probate values, which is kind of what the person held at the date of death and which is passing in accordance to the will. Mm -hmm. But there is also the inheritance tax value of the estate, Mm -hmm. which, like you said, just would take into account any gifts that had been made in the last seven years Mm. and any joint accounts that would automatically pass to the survivor but aren't necessarily passing in accordance with the will. Yeah. Also trusts. The deceased might be a a beneficiary of a a particular kind of trust. So that's an interesting possession trust and um, that's got to be brought into account as well in determining all that. You've got to take a holistic view, haven't you, of everything. So actually the more detail, if they do bring in a a wheelbarrow full of paper, actually the more the merrier really because you want to get the full picture. It's just it's better if it can be distilled down, but you need to get the full picture because that informs whether a grant of probate is going to be required and it informs the pro you know how difficult the process or how complicated the process is going to be because that will depend on the size of the estate and it will depend on the value and it will be depend on whether inheritance tax is going to be due and or whether an inheritance tax account is you know the kind of inheritance tax account that you're going to have to file or whether you're going to have to file one at all so all of this you're trying to pull together aren't you at that first meeting yes Okay, now we did a podcast with David a few months ago where we, we touched on this doing a, having to file a full inheritance tax account or not having to file an inheritance tax account. And sometimes you know there's going to be no inheritance tax to pay when somebody's died, but you've still got to file a full inheritance tax account anyway, which could be for a variety of reasons. Here we're talking about, well, this is actually what happens in practice and this is how we would approach this, isn't it? When we've had that meeting, we're able then to really get a feel for what's going to be involved. And that then means we can then tell the client, I mean, at this stage, is that right? Are we able to tell them at this stage, after we've had this initial meeting, how long we think the process is going to take and the steps are going to be involved? And importantly, the kind of cost it's going to be? It depends um, how certain the executors are of the information that Mm. they've provided us. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they may have been attorneys previously so do have the full range of information available to them, then we would be able to tell them what, on the information provided, we think the post-bait form process will be. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we can calculate costs on that basis for them. And then we would be able to identify rough time scales. Mm-hmm. Sometimes frustrating part of the probate journey is that we're relying on third parties. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. So whilst we can say what we think the timescales will be, a lot of the time it is outside of our control. I mean, the, the big time frames are, again, they're out of, uh, those are the, the probate registry, really. That's the, that's the big time frame, which is out of our control. But at least we know what, what they tell us at the moment is. But yeah, you're right. There's other things that are outside of our control. If we're having to get valuations, which we will do, if we're having to get date of death balance from a bank, investment valuations, property valuations, generally speaking, you send out a request for that information, it comes back pretty quickly. I mean, generally within a couple of weeks, but sometimes it doesn't, does it? No. And also actually you've picked up on quite an important phrase is date of death. So yeah. for the valuations need aren't necessarily the value when they come to see us or yeah. it is um, what was in their account 
at the date of death. Sure. And we kind of understand that there's still going to be ongoing direct debits. So money during that slight interim period, money Mm. may be coming in and maybe paying out, but it's what was in the account on the date that they died, which is the figure that we're interested in. Yeah. Same principle, I suppose, with investments. You know, if you've got shares or if you've got unit trusts, those can change their value on a daily basis. Uh, So by the time somebody's come to see you maybe a couple of weeks after the death, it could be a month, the value might have gone up, might have gone down, but it's the date of death precise value that you're looking at. You can't pick the figure that suits you. (laughs) (laughs) No, you you can't. And also there's a a more complex formula for how you calculate a share price on the date of death. I mean, you can pick it, can't you? If, If they died on a Saturday when the markets aren't trading, you could go for the Friday or the Monday, couldn't you? Depending on which suited you best from an inheritance tax perspective. But that's about the limit of it, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. As you said, we might not be able to give everything absolutely precisely at this stage, but what we would then be going away and doing or we should be doing at this stage is is going away and based on the information we've got scoping out the work that we think is going to be involved and then scoping out each part of that well we know that there are this many investments we know there are this many bank accounts we know that there are this many beneficiaries we know the relationship between the beneficiaries is good or it might be otherwise you know or we we can't see that there are going to be any disputes we know the values are going to mean that this is within inheritance tax thresholds or we know the values mean it's going to be and then we can kind of scope together how much work is going to be involved at each stage who should be dealing with that because the rule of thumb is the more complicated the issues involved or the complicated the preparation of the paperwork the longer it takes and the higher the level of expertise that's needed to deal with it. And and so the higher the level of expertise, the higher the hourly rate is basically the rule of thumb. But by going through that process, we can then give timeframes. They might be a bit fluid or we might have to caveat them in, in certain areas at that stage. And we can also give pricing as well at this point, can't we? Pricing options. Uh, and generally speaking... And we've talked about this in earlier podcasts. If you've gone through this process, like we talked about gathering the information and then scoping it out, doing a kind of project management exercise, which you should be doing at the beginning of this matter project, you generally speaking, I found in 90% of cases, you can give a fixed fee option for doing the whole job, can't you? Yes. And and the good thing about the fixed fee, it provides certainty. Mm. Um, to the executors so they know exactly how much it is yeah. like well, how much it will cost them yeah so, so sometimes a fixed fee doesn't suit people so again if if people don't want a fixed fee we can look at doing things on an hourly rate basis we can give them a range of where we think it will sit i suppose the point there is if it's a fixed fee it's fixed within certain parameters but it's fixed and if it overruns we're taking the risk but on an hourly rate option the client's taking the risk then aren't they yes Right. Okay. So one thing we've assumed in all our discussion so far is that the deceased did a will, but that isn't always the case, is it? In fact, often people don't have a will. Uh, So if it's an intestacy, is there anything different about that initial meeting or are you telling them, telling the clients, well, you don't have executors, do you, for a start? So what, how does it adjust the process? Yes, we talk about the same contents and the will would take a, the meeting would be a similar structure, but because there isn't an executor named in the will, we have to rely on the intestacy provisions and there is a set order of people who are able to 
administer the estate and these are referred to as an administrator mm-hmm. as opposed to an executor and the general phrase for both terms would be a personal representative yeah but we would need to do a family tree and just look at who had survived the deceased as that would dictate who would be eligible to take out the letters of administration okay so if the deceased was married then that or in a registered civil partnership that would be more straightforward as it would be their spouse or partner if they had pre-deceased then we'd look at whether the deceased had any children mm-hmm. at that point and it would be up and they would then be the administrator they don't necessarily all have to act mm-hmm. it can be one or all of them and then if they didn't have any children we'd then take another look at the family tree and it would then be looking at parents if they happen to have survived them gets complicated doesn't it yeah uh, you know you, you get into cousins and cousins germane uh, if i remember rightly it gets very complicated so it's a, a really good reason for not leaving it to chance and doing a will uh, actually isn't it you know there will be a person or people who fulfill the same kind of role as executor and you'll have the same kind of discussion the process will be similar it'll just not have a will within it but those discussions about well what assets are we talking about and the question of whether inheritance tax is going to be an issue and if so to what extent they're all the same whether there's a will or whether there's an intestacy yeah there are sometimes initial issues with an intestacy though as um, before the grant has been issued because mm-hmm. i suppose with the will you are able to prove that you are the executor yeah and you've got a piece of paper yeah but your authority to act as an administrator only arises once the letters of administration have been issued yeah so it can be hard for if you were doing it yourself mm-hmm. to kind of show your authority during that interim that's true that's true that can work both ways though this is a bit uh, it gets us into a bit of esoteric uh, territory but actually that can create some difficulties for the intending personal representative but sometimes it can work in their favor because say if they're claiming uh, a transferable nil rate band from a deceased spouse if it's an intestacy they may have a longer period to be able to claim the transferable nil rate band because there's a two-year period to claim that transferable nil rate band and where there's a will it will run from the date of death because the executor has authority from the date of death but where there's no will it runs from the two years runs from the time at which the personal representative gets the grant of representation because there's no will it runs from from that point it's a very very technical and very abstruse point and you don't really want to rely on it but uh, it, it, it it can work both ways anyway don't leave it to chance do a will that's always our message isn't it we've had that initial meeting we're at stage five of our pathway our probate pathway what will we be doing now what will be the next step in the process let's say that we've had that initial meeting uh, we've actually been able to send out a, a, a pricing proposal to the executors and they've agreed that they want to instruct us on the basis of a fixed fee pricing agreement and then we're moving forward and what stage five of our of our of our pathway and we would then send out a letter of advice to the executors so in this letter we would just confirm the agreed pricing 
and set out the work schedule, which would then just define fully um, what our involvement would be. Mm-hmm. But also we are able then to include any additional information which may not have been covered in the initial meeting. Because mm-hmm. the issue sometimes is that whilst an hour may seem a long time, um, depending on what's in the estate, it can go very quickly and sometimes um, we can't kind of get to everything we need to. So we just kind of then include some additional information about property insurance Mm -hmm. which is one of the priorities yeah unoccupied properties and but also um, giving them some more information about um, uh, section 27 Ah. which is like a statutory advert to creditors so those are the things that you see in the local press addressed from the executors of somebody's estate one of those because i think lots of people have seen those in the in in the adverts in the local press but they're not quite sure what that's all about so the section 27 statutory notices what what are they um it's a notice to any creditors of the deceased so if they owed any money to anyone it gives them the opportunity to reach out to the executors and kind of be listed as creditors of the estate Mm -hmm. the advert usually runs for two months Mm -hmm. and then after that period and the notice has kind of expired it is then becomes harder for any future creditors to kind of come out of the woodwork at a later date saying that the deceased owed me money pay me now so it protects the executors doesn't it but it doesn't the 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 creditor could still follow the money so they could follow the residuary beneficiaries but let's say you've got people who are appointed as executors who aren't beneficiaries they want to be able to distribute the estate in due course knowing that there isn't somebody going to come out out of the woodwork, as you, as you described it, who's going to say, oh, well, they owed me £1,000 or a couple of hundred pounds and you've, you haven't got the funds anymore because you've distributed them. And, and these Section 27 notices after two months would give you that protection as an executor, wouldn't they? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, so we got that letter setting everything out. And actually, yeah, they like you said, they get a schedule that's going to detail on one page summarize these are the steps we're going to take one two three four five six this is included this isn't included and the time frames that we estimate for each of these stages and we'll come back to you if we think the time frames are going to have to expand at at any point so then uh, what's the next thing that we'll be uh, doing on our uh, on our pathway and we will be sending out we refer to it as pre-grant letters so that's Mm -hmm. just determining the date of death values of the assets in the estate mm-hmm. and also any liabilities so that mm-hmm. we're therefore able to calculate the gross value of the estate and also the net value which is required for the probate application. Yeah, okay. And that's still very much a paper-based exercise, isn't it, at the moment? it's There's some of it that's online. There are some banks where you're getting that information from them through an online portal, but mainly it's still letters and letters out and letters back yes i think there is a general shift towards like you say portals and via email but it's not always a quicker process and like you say we where possible prefer well it's easier to Mm. send the letter yeah because you've also got to enclose and the death certificate Mm. as well and that's not just us being stick in the muds, is it? it? It does seem to be just easier doing it through paper. At oh, the yeah. Well, thank you for your application. Please, can you now post us? 
the death certificate. (laughs) You're not actually... You're not achieving anything with the online process. So, okay, so cards on the table. Who's the easiest financial institution to deal with in your experience? And who is the worst? (laughs) Name names. (laughs) I'd say probably the worst is NatWest, (laughs) who do have a portal. Yeah, they do. And they like photographs of the death certificate. But they actually also require... I. ID as well for the executors um, front and back you have to make sure when you actually take the initial ID from the executors you take that correctly because that then can create another hurdle if you then have to Mm. get the client back in because you didn't take a photocopy of the back Mm. side of the driving license Mm -hmm. Do they take a long time or it's just the kerfuffle that you have to go through with them? Um, I think they say once you've uploaded it though it's 10 working days for them to review in action okay okay well we're not really singling them out but they just they do that that does spring to mind as being a bit difficult yeah i think uh, there I've are just other, had a few with them lately yeah, okay there are other financial institutions who are not good as well uh, but the, equally there are lots who are who are a pleasure to deal with okay and then we, it's the same thing isn't it you're, you're liaising with uh, property valuers as well they generally quite quick but sometimes it can take a bit longer and sometimes it can be a more complicated valuation process but generally speaking generally uh, how long do we think that this process where you're gathering the valuations this information in uh, on on an average sized estate let's say uh, uh, get, getting the information in and then being at a point then when you're starting to you know or you're able to prepare the probate application paperwork how long does it generally take i'd say probably before covid you're probably looking at six to eight weeks Mm -hmm. but i think um, it has been extended and i'd say probably 10 to 12 weeks is probably more realistic at the moment yeah it's it's that sort of post-covid everything's kind of seized up a bit in the economy it isn't hasn't quite fixed itself post-covid um aren't enough people to do all the things that are needed you know it's the same across all sectors of the economy isn't it and it has sort of spun it out so about about that period of time isn't it okay so none of this is happening overnight is it Uh, i mean there might be some people who could do a probate you can do a probate application yourself if you're an executor and you can do it all online and and you may be able to do it with estimated figures but if it's a bit more complicated if you want professionals to assist you and you've got to go and get the information from financial institutions to nail down the values which you should be doing really it isn't going to happen overnight is it no whilst part of me wants to say it might be quicker if you went to the banks directly to the branches actually there aren't that many branches either so it's not so that's not even a quicker option no yes it's not the option that it again it might have been say 10 years ago 20 years ago you might have had a a relationship with somebody at the bank who you knew face to face back in the day that's very unlikely now isn't it so then we're let's assume we got all gathered all that information back we've got all the values that we need we're then into the territory of preparing the the probate application paperwork aren't we or applicate because again it's not all paper a lot of it's online isn't it that's another one of the contradictions really because it's an online application but you do end up having to post it okay (laughs) in the last couple of years there has been quite um dramatic changes to the probate process Mm -hmm. and whereas before on a relatively straightforward and small estate you would have prepared an oath and an IHT 205. Mm -hmm. This has now been replaced with an online application Mm -hmm. where we will submit all the relevant information onto the system and then it 
HMCTS, which is part of the probate registry, will then generate a legal statement based on the information that we've inputted, Mm -hmm. which then needs to be signed by the executors, Mm -hmm. which effectively replaces what the oath previously used to do. And unlike the oath, this doesn't need to be sworn. No. And, neither, and the will doesn't need to be signed anymore. No. It just, it's just a simple signature and date from the executors. Yeah. What it's done is it's replaced submitting that oath in paper format together with the will and the probate registry then having to manually input all that detail into their systems. Instead, we're inputting that information online into their portal directly, aren't we? But we're still then having to send them a will and we're still having to download this statement of truth and get that all signed off. But there's no longer having to go off to another solicitor to swear the oath and have to mark up the uh, mark up the will and, and all that, because that was a bit of a rigmarole, wasn't it, really? And, and I think people found that a bit strange and pretty archaic. What about an inheritance tax account? Do you, do you, do you have to do that or that, that's all been dispensed with or ha, ha, what's, what's happening there? In certain situations, it will still be necessary to submit an IHT 400, which mm-hmm. is kind of the long form. Mm-hmm. This is required where inheritance tax is payable. However, there are certain situations where inheritance tax isn't due but if you are claiming any additional um, reliefs Mm -hmm. or exemptions where it is still necessary Mm. to submit the inheritance tax form yeah however we would make you aware of this in the initial meeting yeah yeah well generally we can in the initial meeting it's just sometimes it transpires later on that the estate's bigger than you thought it yeah, was. Yeah, they've but, underestimated the value. Yeah, but but generally we can we can nail that one down at the start. Um, but yeah, just because you're having to file this full inheritance tax account does not necessarily mean that you're going to have to pay IHT. But if you're paying IHT, you are going to have to file an IHT 400. So that's that that's that big inheritance tax account, and 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 actually that will have an effect again on how long the process takes because you get into a sort of chicken and egg situation that having completed all the you know, your probate application paperwork and having completed your inheritance tax account, the inheritance tax account is definitely not an online process, is it? So you've got to get that approved and signed by your client. If there's any inheritance tax that's got to be paid at this stage, that's got to be paid. Generally speaking, you can get that paid from bank accounts that the deceased Yeah, similar to a funeral invoice. That's it, directly. So you can access before the grant to pay the IHT. So you pay your IHT and you send your IHT account off to HMRC. And then you've got to wait how long? 20 working days. Yeah. And um, before you would then submit the probate application to the probate registry. Mm-hmm. So the issue, one of the reasons for the delay is that it's two different offices dealing mm-hmm. with the paperwork. Mm-hmm. So once HMRC have received the inheritance tax form, they submit um, a receipt. It's mm-hmm. called an IHT 421 mm-hmm. to the probate registry, which just confirms to them that any inheritance tax has been paid. Yeah. However, at this point, they haven't actually checked the calculation. So it's not a done deal that yeah. everything yeah. is fine and dandy. You have not got clearance, have you, at this no. stage? You're just allowed to move on to the next part of the process. Once the probate registry have received this receipt, 
they will then proceed um, to yeah. process your application. Yeah. However, they are quite strict on the 20 working days. They are, aren't they? So if we submit the probate application to the probate registry before that 20 day working days is up with the revenue, what the probate registry do is they'll lose the application. <laughs> well, no, they won't necessarily lose it, but they're telling us they can't really be held responsible if they can't marry the two app- the, the, the process up. But also as part of the on to finally submit the online application, they request the date that you submitted the IH2400. Mm-hmm. They require the date they think can then t- give you the green light to then finally submit it online before mm-hmm. you then put it in the post. So you've got to wait out these time periods, which can be a bit annoying because 20 working days is... Four weeks. Yeah, it's a, it's a month, isn't it? And then from that point on, how long are the probate registry going to take? At, at the moment, what are they telling us? Because this, this used to be a two-week period, but now it's... How long is it taking them? 16 weeks yeah. and that's if it's an online application yeah so this is that, that's a long time isn't it and sometimes they'll be able to do it quicker but when they say 16 weeks at the moment that's what they mean and it might come in a bit quicker but if we chase them earlier than the 16 weeks is up you're not allowed you're not allowed to this part can really kind of spin out the process can't it and if it's a paper application it's even longer you're looking at 26 weeks yeah because i think we chased one recently yeah and if it's an intestacy not all intestacies but if it's mm, most intestacies it will be a paper application so that makes the process even longer it doesn't work on the online uh, HMCTS portal. So uh, there's another reason for doing a will. Whether you do a will or you don't, this process doesn't happen overnight. And we hope that the 16 weeks will contract. And I know that there's a select committee who are looking at this at the moment in Parliament, and they're going to be interrogating the officials at the probate registry about why it's taken them so long. Because again, we're either two years beyond or whatever it is, COVID. We're three years beyond this platform actually being introduced so why is it that it's still taking so long to deal with a process that was meant to make it more efficient and they did used to be able to deal with these applications in two weeks and now it's 16 so one hopes it will contract let's see what what kind of a grilling they get from parliament and if if there's a positive outcome from that i would be cynical about whether we'll see much movement quickly because the opg the office of the public guardians had similar grillings about their timescales for dealing with the registration of lasting powers of attorney and we've seen no improvement for i mean for years they've only gone up on really yeah absolutely they're, they're half a year compared with the six weeks they used to be so there we go so aren't we awful cynics but uh it's important that people realize this doesn't happen overnight and there are parts of the process where we can't control it at all or we can't control everything Uh, and we can't even chase people because they'll just say we're not even going to respond to your message until that 16 week period is up okay so let's assume we've now had the grant issued that allows us to do what what can we then do that gives us the legal authority to close the accounts and also to sell any property that is within the estate Mm -hmm. so at this point we would then look at submitting uh, the closure forms for the bank accounts any investments and that sort of thing and then looking at um, 
cashing in that money and bringing it into our client account unless of course they did want to be transferred into the name directly into the names of the beneficiaries yeah okay and so that's important as well because if you're selling a house you can put it on the market actually very very early on as soon as the deceased has died if if you if you want to but you will not be able to exchange Exchange. contracts until the grant is issued so managing the expectations of estate agents, prospective purchasers through all this process is absolutely key. You can agree a sale, you just can't exchange until you've got that grant of probate and it can take a while to get it at the moment. So that's important, isn't it? Right, okay. So then uh, we're in the process then of cashing everything in uh, and we're then able to make distributions. We generally wouldn't distribute everything immediately. We'd advise an interim distribution and then holding back funds for contingencies. We do accounts, a full set of estate accounts as part of this process so that executors uh, and residual beneficiaries can see everything as it moves from date of death, composition and values of the estate right through to the end point when everything is distributed and you can see that to the penny. Clearance from the revenue, if you've got inheritance tax that you're having to pay, you might have to wait some time for that to come through. Um, so that's another thing that can add to the time frame. More often than not, these days, the revenue are saying when they're acknowledging receipt of the inheritance tax account, if you don't hear anything from us by this date, you can assume clearance. But sometimes it isn't quite that way and you get requisitions and it can take time. It's going through all those stages isn't it until we get to the end stage where the accounts are finalized and they're approved by the executors the residuary beneficiaries will get a copy of those and we can make those final distributions having made an interim distribution along the way when we've got access to the estate funds yeah where it's appropriate like not in every case they can't do it in every case but if you can uh, it's a good a good thing a good thing to do and so again you hope that you've been able to complete the whole exercise within those time frames that we've given earlier on at the stage when we were working out our you know how do we manage this project and how long does each stage take sometimes it could take a bit longer you try you know keep the executives informed if there's any movement in that uh, the, the key thing I suppose is communication and ongoing discussion with your executors with your clients and with the residual beneficiaries and keeping everybody updated uh, so that everybody knows what's going on at every stage of the process yes I suppose it links a bit uh, links back to also what HMCTS's argument is that don't chase us for 16 weeks they can't work on the files because they're having to give updates so by us giving us keeping our clients and the residual beneficiaries regularly updated yeah it then means they don't have to keep chasing us as well. So it yeah. frees up our time to then be able to carry on yeah. doing the work that's needed. Yeah, absolutely. And again, laying out those timeframes earlier on gives everybody a clear idea, doesn't it? And so it means there's less requirement to chase or be chased. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, a, a run through that pathway from death to the point where probate's been obtained and the whole administration of the estate has been carried out and completed. Along the way, there can be all sorts of pitfalls. There can be all sorts of things that you didn't... Surprises. Surprises, (laughs) things that you didn't quite ever foresee that that would happen. Uh, But that's the framework generally upon which everything hangs. Again, if there are disputes that can spin everything out unforeseen events can spin everything out i hope that people will find that a useful guide to the the, to the pathway to the process and uh, amy 
thank you very much indeed for uh, for taking us through that i've certainly learned a few things that i didn't know so uh, thank you <laughs> Thanks to Edward and Amy for sharing their expertise. More proof that lawyers don't bite. If you have a legal issue you'd like me to put to our team to cover in an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please remember to follow or subscribe on your app so you're notified of new releases when they come out every Monday. Speak to you next week. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.